and welcome to episode 30 of the Game Pit. I am Ronan and this is one of our Picking Over the Bones episodes in which we look at four games, talk about the rules briefly and then give our thoughts and opinions on them. With me is Sean. Hello there, Ronan. We are looking at four games, as Ronan said, and my two are going to be Libertalia and Gloom. And the two games I'm going to be introducing are going to be Greed and Praetor. Before we get started, as always, we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network, along with the very best in gaming podcasts. You can also find us on 2d6.org, along with a whole host of gaming goodness. And in addition to our normal picking over the bones games, in this episode, at the end, we will be previewing a game called King Down, which is currently, as we go to air, on Kickstarter. I walked outside one day and a man was standing there. He had a great big beard and lots and lots of hair. He said, won't you come down to the shore and join my jolly crew? We'll wander around the world beneath the skies of blue. We'll sail upon the seven seas, travel near and far. Take from the rich and give to the poor and say har, 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 har. So, first up for this episode is Libertalia, which is a 2012 release from Marabunta and Asmodee, designed by Paolo Mori. And Paolo did one of Ronan's favourites, Vasco da Gama. He also did the Pocket Battle series, Batman, the Gotham City strategy game, and Augustus. It plays two to six players. With a playing time suggested of 45 minutes, but I'd say with the higher numbers, you're looking at really 60 minutes or so. And what is it? It's a hand management card game with action selection set on a pirate ship. So Libertalia is actually a possibly fictional pirate colony where they could basically live out the rest of their lives without worry for being stabbed in the back or arrested or interfered with in any way. So in the game, the players are captains of an aging pirate crew looking to make a few last attempts to gather booty before they retire to the fabled Libertalia. Each player has a deck of the same 30 numbered cards, with the only difference being the colour and the secondary number between 1 and 6 on the cards. This is to differentiate between the same cards if they are played. The cards are all members of your crew, ranging from the parrot and the monkey, well, number one and two, to the captain and the Spanish governor at 29 and 30, respectively. So to begin the game, one player is going to shuffle their deck and deal themselves nine random cards, and the other players are going to choose the same cards from their deck. This will be your hand for the first of the three campaigns that you're going to play in the game. The board is set up with the drawing of the bounty tiles and one bounty tile is drawn per player for each of the six places and these represent six days of the campaign and the crew are going to rest on the seventh day. So the mainstay of the game lies in selecting the crew member and the players place their card face down on the board. Once this has been done by all the players, the cards are turned over and arranged in ascending order with any ties sorted by the secondary number mentioned earlier. Then, any cards with a Dawn power 
on them are allowed to use that power again in ascending order. The dawn powers usually give you a nice little bonus, or in the case of a character like the Brute, which is 14, he's going to kill the highest ranking card played this round. The players then select their preferred bounty token in descending order. So the highest ranking card is going to get the first choice of the bounties. And then there's a, this some cards with dusk powers, and you can play these now after you, each player has selected their bounty. And again, they're going to do things similar to what the dawn powers do. The bounty... They range from chests, jewels, and barrels, and treasure maps, which generally give the pirates treasure, with the maps having to be collected in groups of three. Then there are sabers that allow you to kill an opponent's pirate from his den. More on that later. And there are Spanish officers who basically take the pirate out, used to obtain them, and send them to the grave, and cursed idols that are worth minus three treasure points. After this... Crew cards that have not been killed are placed in the player's den, and any cards with a nighttime bonus are activated, and that bonus is collected. This probably why players will opt for sabers so that they can kill their opponents. The process happens six times, and then once the sixth day passes, players activate their seventh day bonuses on their cards in their den. They cash in any treasure tokens and add their total treasure points onto the scoreboard. Everything is wiped clean with the exception of the unused cards in the player's hands and six new cards are drawn. Players also will keep 10 coins worth of treasure points. After the third round is scored and totaled, whoever is in the lead wins the game. So, Ronan, Libertalia, your thoughts? So, Sean, I'm going to start where you usually start, and this is a very good-looking game. The artwork is cool, different pictures for each of the different characters... It all is very well produced. It feels kind of a bit gloomy and a bit dark, which is in keeping with the fact you're going to be killing each other and what have you. What do you think about those components? Because you're our component boy. Well, the artwork definitely, Ronan. I really, really like the artwork. It does sort of bring you into that sort of gritty, piratey world. It's very well done. I'm not a big fan of the actual cards themselves. I find that they're a bit flimsy. And the money tokens are, well, they're so so, they're not great. But the actual design of the game and the fact that the board represents a ship does feel really thematic. And in terms of the, the art, artwork, in terms of the artwork on the characters specifically, they're really good and they fit in. And often the actions of the characters fit in thematically. So. As you mentioned, the brute does actually beat someone up, or the parrot lets you uh, copy something and what have you, or play another one out of your hand, and they all feel like the action is linked to who the person is. Yeah, you're absolutely right, which, which worries me, because that means you're building up for something nasty. And they do, they feel thematic. I like the fact that you have this crew, they all do thematic things. I mentioned the brute in my summary of the game before. And the brute does what you expect the brute to do. He's going to go and nobble someone for you. The captain is very high-powered. He's at the upper echelons of the power state. So, yeah, they, they do feel individually thematic. So, why do I not feel much like I'm a pirate when I play it? When I'm playing it, I, I feel like this could be any of a hundred different themes. I think all the trappings are there off the thematic play of being a pirate, but 
for me, I think the disconnect comes with the scoring because you're supposed to be raiding this booty. It's a bit weird that you will get one off five anyway. But anyway, that booty is just not very thematic and not linked in heavily enough to the scoring. A lot more of the scoring just comes from the card play, which makes it feel like it could be anything because, you know, card effects could be anything. So for it to feel like a pirate, for me, I would want to have the booty to be the focus of the scoring. But it's not really. It's just a little dribble of points here and there. And it's what you're doing with your cards and the combos with them, which is actually more important. Which, in terms of gameplay, you say, yeah, okay, that, that's good that I'm looking for clever combinations. But the heart of the game purports to be how are we going to divvy up this booty, when really that's not as important to how the game actually plays. Well, yeah, I agree with you to a point. I haven't got as big a problem as you do with it. But, see, I think of it as that you you're these competing pirate crews and you're arriving to wherever this booty is located and obviously the first crew that you're going to get the pick of the spoils. Yeah, you don't really see sort of them. There's nothing in the game that would give you the impression that you're you're going out, you're battling, you're winning this booty. You kind of just, you kind of just get it. But I think where the thematic feel for me comes in is that you're this, the captain or the overlord of this ship and you're selecting the crew members that you need to go and do a certain job for you. I think the feel that you're kind of going against each other in terms of you're sniping the opposite crews and you're doing nasty things to each other, you're taking away people's crews, you're stopping them getting certain booty that they want. That's where I think that the feel of being a nasty pirate comes into it. I take on board your point. Definitely those booty tiles. It's kind of an after effect sometimes. With once once you've played the game almost, then everyone just gets to select their little booty tile. So yeah, maybe not the most thematic part of the game, but I think there is other things. So the one thing I also do like about it is that the fact that you cannot predict what's going to happen. It's not something in which you're going to fall into a pattern. People are going to get into patterns like playing the same cards at the same time. When you start with those first nine cards, generally that's when it's most predictable because obviously you have a limited selection. But as soon as people have played certain cards and other people have played certain other cards and then you draw six more, then you don't. it becomes much less of a pattern to the game. And as obviously every game is going to be different as well. So there is no predictability to how the game is going to develop, which cards are going to be important in which situations, and who is going to play what at any time. So I like that, the fact that you don't really know what's going to go wrong, you're just kind of best guessing, and as much as playing your hand of cards, you're playing the other players as well. You're more playing the other players towards the beginning of the game, and you can predict a little bit more, and then towards the end, you're just trying to utilise the cards you've got, and trying to hold back something that you think might combo better with some cards that come out later. There's slightly more than the impression that you gave there. You only change cards twice in the game, so you get six new cards the second round and six new cards the third round. So you you generally know what people have got in their hand. They're only going to finish the round before three cards. So there's only going to be three cards in the second round that's potentially different. And of course, like as you go on, the the, the third round becomes you've got to kind of remember what they what they did play. But there are some big cards that do some big things, and people will generally notice who has played them and who hasn't played them. So. I do think you can kind of predict what people are doing, especially if they're holding on to that big play card. And you can see from the build-up of their den and the build-up of their grave what they might be angling for. But yeah, there is that random in it, definitely. And 
think the random, as you said, I think that is also a plus. To, to cut a long story short, I think you can predict to a degree, but the random is a nice feature. Now, Rona, I think this game is really interactive. You're always paying attention to what people are doing. You've got that theatre of the big reveal, who's chosen what card. The cards all interact as they're played. Even when you're picking up that booty, you're interacting with people. Like, I find that's one of the biggest draws to me for this game. I agree that it is very interactive, but I think this is the flip side of sort of the positive point I just made, in that it's good that every game's different, each round's unpredictable to me, and you're not exactly sure who's going to play what on which day. It is heavily interactive, but I like interaction in which I can sort of predict to some degree people's motives and what they might be going for, and therefore I have some idea of where attacks are come from or how I'm going to be interacted with. I don't feel that in Libertalia. I really don't. I can try and predict who's going to play a certain card on a certain day. But generally, you kind of have most fun with this playing with a higher player count, you know, four, five, six, whatever you. And trying to predict that over the six days, the nine cards they've got becomes very difficult, all those cards coming in. And it tends to be for me, yes, there's interaction, but it's not interaction I can predict. I just fire a card in, hope for the best, and then whatever comes out, comes out. It almost feels quite sort of like a dice roll to me. It's sort of like I put my card in and then, well, what's that being thrown in with? Oh, there you go, that's what happened. I had no idea that that was the combination of cards that was going to come out. out of the, it's got to be thousands and thousands of possible combinations once you get in the game that can be played on any particular day. To take on board two points you make there, uh, once again, those combinations of cards, there are cards that really do chain together, there are cards that maybe aren't as effective together or as thematic together. I think we played a game recently where maybe the best cards didn't come out. Now, I, I think that I still enjoyed that game in Mint, and I think that that was the fact that those cards that maybe weren't the most entertaining cards to play with, I, the fact that I still enjoyed it with that, I, I thought was a good thing. Also, you mentioned about the player counts. I do think that the sweet spot of this game is, at, as you said, at the higher number of the player counts, because two players, it doesn't really work. It's okay, I, I would play it two-player, but definitely four, five, and six players, it really comes to life in for me. It, yeah, higher player count, it becomes much more sort of fun. Again, I say that a million times, unpredictable, you're just kind of going to wait and see, which actually leads on to my next point, because I almost feel like I can't really play this game to win it. I just play it to have some fun, see what happens, have a bit of a laugh, Everyone be a tiny bit mean to each other. You can't be too mean, but a little bit mean interacting with each other and just see who wins in the end. You could sit there and try and work out the very best combos of your cards as you have them and then try and predict what the other four players are going to play. And But that's going to really slow it down. And there's not enough in the game for me to think, right, I'm going to really, really concentrate here, see who's played what. See, it's just not worth it. For me, it's what's going to be effective, yes, but also funny vaguely what's going to come out on this day and let's see what comes out and wash perhaps my feeling of unpredictability also comes from the attitude i take to it in that it's just a little bit of fun it's just a, almost the points are almost irrelevant because i i just don't know what's going to score what and who's going to score who and i, I can't really tell who's going to win to be honest with you. it's definitely not to be taken like too seriously I think it's a very reactive game. I think you can't really have a strategy going. 
because you're always reacting to what other people are doing. Well, okay, you've taken that card off me. Maybe I need to take that card off you. That person's having a bit, got a bit too many people scoring points in their den. Let's, let's weaken that a little bit with a few sabers or one of the other cards that interacts with other people's dens. So it's, it's very reactive. It's, and it's, yeah, it's definitely, it's, it's a bit of fun. You can't really plan too far ahead. There's a time scale, it's not quite a filler. Because I think the upper number, the upper echelons of the numbers you're looking at, probably about an hour to play it. But I think it's a very fun field hour, only. So I don't know that it's a very fun field hour, short. I think that it's quick game. It feels very light in terms of mechanisms, although there are clever mechanisms in there, and the cards do interact in clever ways. It's not completely random in the way the cards work. But it just feels like, it feels like kind of a relaxy, almost a party gamey sort of atmosphere. It's what I'd call a super filler. If you've got 45 minutes, an hour, maybe your brain's burned out on something really heavy, or maybe you just got some players that are, that are into the lighter side of gaming, then Libertalia can be really fun. With older kids, it can be really fun because it's funny and they laugh at the sort of the meanness, playing the cards at each other, but not to the point of being disheartened. You can't tear someone's whole game apart. Well, not easily, anyway. So it certainly it fills a hole. It does a job. It's a light, fun, little game, which I'm happy to play with. If you like the sound of it, go for it. I think Sean's going to be a lot more positive than I am, though. How did you guess, Ronan? Because I know that you love it. <laughs> I do love it. I do think it's a very fun field hour. I think the artwork is stunning. I think there is a really thematic to this game. I like the fact that everybody starts with the same hand of cards, so that random feel is negated to some degree. There's lots of variety in the cards, and there's different things to consider on the cards. This game is easy to teach, it's really easy to pick up, and it's easy to just immerse yourself into. Gently, it's not a brain burner, and quite correctly said, may not appeal to the diehard Euro gamer fans out there, but it really appeals to me, and if you like a lightish game with a bit of theatre, a bit of fun, a bit of excitement, I don't think you can go far wrong. It's a very prominent member of my collection, and I will be keeping it for many years, and hopefully enjoying it for many years. That's Libertalia. So the second game we're going to talk about this episode is Greed. Greed is a card drafting game for two to five players. It takes around 30 minutes. It's designed by Donald X. Vaccarino, who's very famous for designing Dominion, Kingdom Builder, Infiltration, Gauntlet Falls. And it's published by Queen Games. And we featured this in one of our previews previously. It is themed on each player taking the role of the head of a 1960s gangster firm. And the game is played over 12 rounds of cards drafting. And at the end of the 12 rounds of card drafting, whoever's got the most money is going to win the game. Now, everyone starts with 12 cards in their hands. And for the first two rounds, you simply draft one of the cards from your hand and you pass 
the remainder of your cards to your player on your left. And then you do that again in the second round. In the third round, the game starts for real. And you'll have had three cards in your hand at this stage, and you play one of them down onto the table in front of you in your tableau, and all the cards are going to get resolved. They all have an individual number on them, and from lowest to highest, they're going to resolve, have their effect, and do what they need to do. So there are three different types of cards. There are thugs, who are obviously thugs and criminals who are going to join your gang. There are holdings, and those are businesses and enterprises which are going to be setting up and hoping to have permanently in the game. And there are actions, which are generally one-off effects, which are going to give you some sort of bonus, make you some money, and generally help you during the course of the game. Now, each card may be free to play or it may have a need and a cost. And the most basic things that the needs and costs are, if it's a need, you must have it, but you don't have to spend it in order to play the card with a need on it. For a cost, you have to spend whatever that cost is. Now, the needs and costs are going to be in either money, which is simple. Now, you start with none, so if you want to play a card like that, you're going to have to generate some money. They can be in one of the types of cards. So you might have a need of a couple of thugs, for example. You have to have played two thugs previously before you can play a card which needs a couple of thugs or cost a thug, which means you must kill one of your thugs. And the same with holdings. There are, however, different symbols on some of the cards which will allow you to play needs and costs. Now, thugs come with three different symbols. There are keys, cars, and guns. And holdings come with, with different symbols. But some holdings and some actions require you to have a certain number of keys or a certain number of cars or a key, car, and gun, whatever you. So you're trying to build up your tableau in order to allow you to play certain holdings and actions, all with the idea of trying to generate some money. With the holdings, some of them have in-game effects, some of them have permanent effects, some of them have effects at the end of the game, as you'd expect. They also have sets of symbols, and they can be in needs and costs, but mostly they're with regards to how much money the holding is going to make for you. They come with bottles, which represent booze, and spanners, which show sort of tools and know-how, and hearts, which show sort of uh, the seedier side of life, should we say, in the big city. And when you play a holding, you're going to get investment tokens on it, which represent money at the end of the game. The number of investment tokens is however many of these bottle spanners or hearts are on that holding. And also, if you manage to match any symbols, you get extra investment tokens put on there. Investment tokens, like I said, were £10,000 at the end of the game if you manage to keep them in game. And there are various card effects which allow you to add investment tokens, take investment tokens away from other players. There are cards which allow you to kill other players' thugs, which give you money, give other players money, allow you to burn holdings. There's an insurance office which lets you get in investment tokens every time you lose something. So a lot of these cards interact with each other and players are interaction and the order of players is important, which is why I mentioned that about the numbers. Uh, certain cards have a different effect depending upon where they come in the turn order. So players are going to play 12 different rounds. As I said, you're going to play 10 cards or thereabouts. There are certain ways in which you play maybe one or two more cards than that. Count up the money and whoever wins at the end is the winner. It says 30 minutes to play. This is definitely in the filler territory. There are only four pages of rules. Probably a lot lighter than you'd expect coming out from Donald X, Vaccarino and Queen Games. And that's it for the rules. Sean, what do you think of Greed? First off... I'm going to do what I usually do, talk about the design of it. The design is really not to my personal taste, but what I was impressed with is it's really functional. Everything's easy to decipher. The iconography stands out from the cards. You can see what everybody's got in front of them. And that's, that's what 
a game like this needs to be. It's a quick, fast-paced card game where you kind of need to know what, what's going on around you, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, I'd say individually, the artwork is... I think it fits the theme. It kind of does give you a slightly different feel. And I like the theme. I like that the theme is slightly different to other games. Yeah, it's a bit weird. It's a random 60s gangster. But, but okay. Um, I, I think it's functional, the look of it. I think it works well. I wouldn't say it was the prettiest game. I wouldn't say the art and the look of it is a selling point. But I, I think it does the job. I think it's okay. Yeah, absolutely. I think it does the job. I don't I don't like this 60s, 70s artwork, but yeah, as you say, it does the job. I like the pace of this game, Ronan. It rolls along at a really nice pace. It finishes in a short time. There's plenty going on to keep you involved, and I keep using the, the phrase, but it really doesn't outstay its welcome. It, exactly. I think that is probably the main selling point of greed, and I don't want that to be as a negative. It's not... Uh, a completely random or a game with nothing to it at all. You do have to play well in order to make money, but it is extremely quick, and everyone is playing simultaneously. And actually, when you're sitting there waiting for 10 seconds someone make a decision, it almost feels like downtime in this game, because it is that quick. And the cards, there's none of them which have massive chains to resolve. Some of them kind of linger around and have an effect at the end of the next round or what have you. But even that, they're all very quick, very easy to understand. It's really easy to uh, to explain as well which is kind of vital for something as quick as this. If you get it out, if you're explaining it for 20 minutes and then it only takes 20 minutes to play, well, it kind of puts players off. But this is five minutes of explanation, if that. Easily get a game done in under half an hour. You know, 20-minute games are, are possible. And the length is not that affected by the number of players either. A five-player game is not too much longer than a two- or three-player game. Yeah, definitely. And... Well, there's not a sort of whole host of directions to go in this game. I feel like there's enough to make sure that people do have a choice about what they're going to do. And also, another thing I'll say about the game is that the nasty effects that you can do to scupper others or just be horrible to the people around you, they're not, they're not just given to you. You don't just pick up a card and go, oh, thank God I got that. You kind of have to work towards them because you can pick up the card, but you still need to build up certain things in your in your sort of tableau or watch what other people are doing to make that card effective yeah it's it's got lots and lots of, of interaction like that and like you say it's not something that's just given to you and also it's never sort of devastating that the effects things have generally if it's a major effect like it's going to take away a holding which if you've, you've got six or seven investment markers on a holding that can be half your score it generally gives you warning and says you're going to lose a holding at the end of the next round so then you've got a chance to, to play another holding sort of a, as a buffer. Or if it's going to kill one of your thugs, it's not often that a thug is going to be key. Although, uh, play on words there, it might be providing a symbol like a key that you're wanting to use as, as part of later on. Because you see all the cards that go around the table, you can see the cards that have the higher costs and needs, and you can build towards them. You can look after a couple of passes. It does depend on how many players are in the game. But if you see there's a big card go around that requires you to have a couple of cards and you've got your eye on it, you can either draft it, and hope to bring it in, or you can let it go around and try and take the thugs with cars on them out of the game so that you're ready when it comes around to you to play it. It's nice that you get to see what's in the game without perfect information, and therefore the interaction has a lot to do with negative drafting and seeing what other people are doing and what they're trying to build up and having a look and seeing, you know, oh, this is a really good card. I can see that it requires a couple of guns. My, the next player to the left of me has got a couple of guns. I'm going to have to draft that. And actually, that's also an interesting decision because, as, as you say, there's a balance to it because you've only got a hand size of three. Sometimes that can reduce because you can play an extra card on a turn. Sometimes it can go up, but, but basically three. 
And to negative draft one in that you can't use really scuppers you for the rest of the game. So like you say, taking negative effects, it's a balance. It's a, Yeah, it's okay, but it's not as good for me as something else I might do, but it kind of puts a handbrake on other people. Yeah, that, it just gives you enough choice to keep the game interesting and to keep it ticking over. How do you feel that the game scales in terms of the player count? This goes two to five, Ronan. Now, I've played it with two players and I've played it with four players. But how do you feel it scales? In my opinion, uh, two is too few because there's not enough cards in the game. There's only 20 cards from the 80 cards that are in the game. And therefore, sometimes the combinations aren't there. There might only be one or two very effective cards which will work with the combination of symbols in the 24 cards you're using in a two-player game. And it, it can become very negative sum and you can kind of get in a hole a little bit, which is two. And then with five, it works with five, but it does feel a little bit luckier because you're not seeing as many of the cards by the time you start making decisions as to what to play and what to save up for. And when you pass a hand on, you know, you're only going to see that hand again one more time generally. And it's likely the cards you were thinking about have gone. It's kind of harder to keep track of everything that's in there. So five works. Three and four, I think, are the ideal spots. And two, um, what do you think of two? Because you've played it more two-player than I have. I actually think there's enough in it to make two player interesting. I, I was able to go down one path, and uh, my wife, who I played it with, was able to go down another path, and the stores ended up quite close. It was kind of zero-sum, and there was a little bit more luck involved than there would be with a four-player game when we played a four-player game. I think it's definitely better with four-player, but I think it is possible to play it as two-player. Okay, cool. Well, another one of the interesting things about it, I think, is the, uh, the timing of the cards can be so important. I guess that's that's one of the biggest luck things in there, is that you can be preparing to play something. Say you've got a card that, the one that requires you to have $90,000, and it will give you 45000 extra on top of that. And then suddenly someone hits you with a thug that takes 10000 off you, and you go down below the 90000 and your huge player that you planned, maybe you played a double up your money card the term before in preparation for this. And just that timing of cards, because one comes before the other, can really mess you up. But sometimes, I mean, because it's so quick, it is quite funny. You're not going to get too upset, but it's interesting. And it's interesting the way they've done that in the numbering of the cards. They're not random. A lot of the cards that interact with other players are low down, which lets you mess with people. Or ones that let you take away investment markers, for example, are higher up in the deck because then other players might play new holdings out and then you get to take the investment markers away from them. I, I think it's clever the way they've numbered the deck. It's quite subtle. Oh, yeah, for sure, definitely. The numbering of the deck is, is key because it's obviously numbered for a reason. And some of the big moves that we played in that four-player game was quite funny when the bigger number of cards came out and completely scuppered the person with the lower card. So, yeah, definitely it is kind of a take-that aspect to the game. One thing I want to talk about, and it's probably not the most important thing, but we do whinge about it when it goes the other way. Queen Games has finally made a game box that just contains what it needs to contain, and there's no it's real extra space. It's nice to see a card game coming in a small box for a change, Ronan. I think there's a bit of space in there. <laughs> a little bit of space. <laughs> but it's not. We when we previewed it, I know exactly what we're saying. We previewed it. We were thinking they might put it out in a big, huge box, charge thirty pounds for it, try and present it as something. It's not something of a bigger game. It's not. It is reasonably priced. You can get it for under twenty pounds in the UK. It is a decent sized box, as in it's small. It, there's room there for expansions, which I think Sean's going to get onto about expansions. Uh, and you're right, it is presented as it is, it is packaged as it is, and it's sold at the right price for what it is a quick card game. I've been talking about expansions. I, I think 
this game is actually a game that I think it lends itself to expansions, and I'd be more than happy at a reasonable price to buy the expansions for this. As you said, there is a little bit of room in the box, so you're not going to be having to buy a new new box for, for the cards, so you can always fit them into the game. I would not have a problem if they release some expansions, and I think it's going to eventually need it, because there's not a lot of cards in that box. Yeah, the 80 cards in a five-player game, you're going to see 60 of them, so you're going to get a feel for them quite quickly. What I think possibly with an expansion what happens with car games like this which are so quick is that when you throw an expansion in it kind of waters down the deck a little and certain combinations become rarer i think actually throwing in some more cards would be great and possibly then just add in a few more rounds of drafting so that plans can become bigger so possibly some cards with higher needs and higher costs with bigger effects which will then allow you to build up slightly longer chains and sort of play towards sort of bigger cards towards the end and bigger end game playing what do you think Sean do you think it would change the game too much or do you think maybe just adding a tiny bit of meat to the bones would work with this I think I think down down the road at first for me I'd just like to see a few extra cards that tie into what, what you're trying to do just to freshen it up a little bit because you are going to see those cards quite a lot of time like, down the road if this game is going to stay the test of time and we'll still be talking about in maybe a year's time. Yeah, definitely, that's exactly the way they need to go around it. Yeah, well, I think when you look at the track record of Donald X Vaccarino and Queen Games, I'm pretty certain there's going to be expansions down the line. I like, I'm looking forward to it. I think there's lots of things they can do with the system. Like I say, not nothing too major, but, but just to add to a nice little game. Sean, do you want to give us your final thoughts on Greed? Well, Ronan, I think we've been pretty nice about this game, and... It, it merits it because it's a good game. I don't think it's the best game out there. I don't think it does anything particularly new or I don't think it does anything particularly well, but it does everything just fine and it's an enjoyable game for it. I would recommend it to anybody who wants a filler game, but with, as you quite rightly said, Ronan, with a little bit of meat on its bones and a little bit of take that aspect to it. So it's a good game. Yeah, agreed. It plays quickly. It's really easy to explain, as I said. There's nothing awkward or difficult in the system. When you explain it, everything makes sense. You say, this is this. Even people who are not very experienced at gaming get it and say, okay, cool, that makes sense. Um, It feels like you can build towards something, especially when you're seeing a lot of the cards in play. I'd like to see that maybe built on a little bit more, as I said previously. You have to judge it on its length and complexity. Sometimes I think it might be judged too harshly because of the pedigree of designer and the publisher. When you judge it against other 20-25 minute games, this is a very good game for its length and complexity. I'm impressed with it and I actually hope to see some more. And those are our thoughts on Greed. So from Greed to Gloom, Gloom is the 2005 release from Atlas Games, designed by Keith Baker. Uh, Keith did the Doom that came to Atlantic City and Cthulhu Flux. It plays two to four players in a playtime of roughly 60 minutes, although I think it probably, with the lesser player counts, comes right down from that count. And it is a hand management card game with some recommended storytelling. 
So the aim of the game is to make your family as miserable as possible before you kill them off. So as I said, it's a, it's a card game, and the decks consist of four types of clear cards. Now these cards are clear so that the icons are stackable on them. The character cards. There are four families. Castle, Slogar, Hemlock Hall, Deoxx, Den of Deformity, and Blackwater Watch. And each have five family members. These are the cards that you're going to start off with on the table in front of you. And they're the base for all the modifier cards. Speaking of which, the modifier cards, these either add a plus or a minus happiness points or self-worth points to yours or other players' characters. They have story icons also that work with the untimely deaths to add more points. And they also have some special effects that either offer a bonus or a penalty to the person whose family member they are played on and as long as they are still showing. I mentioned untimely deaths. This is the next card type. These cards are how you kill off your family members and can be played on any living family member with a minus self-worth or happiness score. They must be played as your first action. And finally, events are cards that can be played to trigger an immediate special effect and are then discarded. They can be played on your turn or in response to another player's action, depending on the card. So playing the game, after the players have chosen their families, they start with five cards in hand. And on your turn, you have two actions. On the first action, you may play any card, discard a card, or pass. On the second action, you may play any card except the untimely death card, discard a card, or again pass. At the end of your turn, you can draw up to your hand limit, which is usually five, but you do not have to discard if you are over your hand limit. The game ends when one family has nobody left alive, and players then count up their self-worth points on only the family members who are deceased. The player with the least self-worth is the victor. And that's the basic mechanics of this game. But it's a funny old game, and the somewhat unwritten rule is the recommended storytelling side of this. Players are highly encouraged to make up wild and wonderful stories while playing this game, to describe the horrible and sometimes lovely things that befall their families. And it's here where the game really comes to life. I'll leave it there, and I will let Ronan tell us how much he loves this game, because his artistic side flows. Sean, there's a famous line in a film which we know well from our childhood. And it goes, when I drink whiskey, I drink whiskey. And when I drink water, I drink water. Meaning, you don't need to mix the two together. You didn't say it in the right accent, though. <laughs> When I drink whiskey. Anyway, <laughs> is this a game or is it a chance to tell stories? And that's kind of, is it some kind of unholy amalgamation of the two? Clearly, it's attempting to combine the two together. A, a consumer of the product, here is my issue with it. When I want to listen to a story, whenever I want to listen to a story, I am lucky enough to be subscribed to Audible. And I can listen to hundreds and thousands of amazing, professionally written, edited and prepared stories. My friends and the people I play games with are all funny people. But attempting to make up a genuinely entertaining story on the fly when things are happening all around them. They're not professionals and it's not going to be the greatest story ever. There's the odd funny moment. The other issue with it being a story and trying to make it funny is a lot of the funny stories come from when you're playing cards on each other. 
and that interaction. However, you then have to remember what all the other 12 characters around the table are, who they are, what the stories that have been told already about them are, what the effect of those stories are, and that just in itself, one of the issues I have with it as a framework in which to create a story is that in a four-player game, there are 16 characters on the table, and they all have their own backstories, and they all have ongoing stories from the car play on them. And in an attempt to keep those 16 characters in your head, in an attempt to understand what's going on and use your cards in an entertaining way that makes any sort of sense, it's really difficult. So it ends up, instead of being an unfolding story, which could be quite entertaining, it ends up just being one-liners, just constant one-liners, and here's one funny thing that happens. When that occurs, when it's being played like that, each card is used for its most obvious sort of one-liner or, or joke. And then the next time you play it and that card comes up again, it's just the same joke happening again. Because there's too much to try and keep track of to create a good narrative around the table. I think where you're going wrong, Ronan, well, I mean, it's your own personal taste, but I don't think it has to be one massive narrative. You're just talking about the last card played, use that as a prompt on top of the, of the character. You just choose randomly. It doesn't really matter because, as you said, the game the gameplay doesn't stand up to scrutiny. It's a simple game. It's very much a take that stuff going on here, have have that plus points, make your character happy. But it's just the imagination needed, and they, the cards give you some humorous prompts. And I suppose it's it's like Marmite. You're just gonna like it. Or you're not. You're gonna be excited about this game, or you're not. You're gonna be invested in it, or you're not. And I can completely see why people wouldn't like this game absolutely it sung to me when i heard when i first heard about it and then when we were at luncon 3 recently a famous author by the name of patrick roth first did a show where he stood and went up on stage and played with some other people and i kind of fell in love with the game then just listening to them now he's a he's a published author so he's going to be good at it obviously but trying to try Again, with my friends and with my wife, we've just we've just taken to the game, and there's nothing there's nothing mechanical that I can say works on any level. Just that we enjoy making up the stories, and I think that's where the love for this game comes, and that's where the hatred for this game comes. Well, I haven't gone into hatred yet. Jeez, I was trying to be polite. <laughs> In terms of you saying you're just playing on the last card played, you're just reacting to one card played at a time. Well, let's talk about the cards then. They they are the most sort of interesting visual aspect of the game. They are based on see-through plastic with those icons which, which go into certain areas. So when you play cards on top of each other, they cover over each other's pluses and minuses and what have you. Individually, those cards look great. When I when I sit there with a the deck of those cards and I look at them, I go, wow, these look cool. They've got artwork that suits the sort of gloomy uh, feel to the game. But they don't work as a game component. They are almost impossible to read from further away than 18 inches. You cannot tell what's going on on the table at any time. The pluses and minuses are so tiny that I don't know if that character over there is on plus 60 or minus 120. I cannot tell. I have to get up and look. I cannot tell what the story aspect of each card is. I cannot tell even individual characters apart from each other. It's The whole look of it does not in any way help you play the game or create the story. It looks cool. It is not optional. Oh, boy, you should have seen the <laughs> the editions before. You played the second edition, Ronan, where they really cleaned up the artwork and made it easier to oh. read. 
some of the what? earlier some of the earlier editions were even worse and even worse than that they weren't printed like the same so some of the things that were supposed to cover other things up were slightly askew and off to the side and they weren't covering them up properly but they slowly fixed those issues mm, fixed and... is a strong word <laughs> well they made the writing on the cards clearer and easier Are you serious? saying it's the easiest they have indeed i think that there is merit to what you're saying i don't think it's the greatest game with three or four i think it's a good game if you've got the right people around you and as i said before people who are going to invest in this game but i think where it finds its home is a two-player game and that's where, because you don't have to do all that neck strain and trying to work out what everyone's characters are. You've just got one person in front of you and your character's in front of you and it works perfectly well. You can see everything that everyone's got. You can remember everything that everyone's got. And you can then build up, as you said before, I where I said that you're only working off the last card, then all of a sudden you're actually remembering the story. So you have got those two other families of five, which is ten more cards that you've got to remember what you did to them and what other people did to them. So yeah, I I, I buy into what you're saying. I think all the things that you're going to say about this game, Ronan, they're going to be 100% right. And I think it is just going to come down to whether you can be bothered to forget this game's little quirks and negatives and, and just be happy that they're giving you this prompt to tell these stories and you have to be with the right people. So, yeah, I kind of agree, <laughs> but I still love it. <laughs> we appear to be agreeing with each other and drawing two massively different conclusions on the game. So, uh, <laughs> um, I'll, just, I'll just sum up on my thoughts and you can agree with me and then stand and go in the different directions. In terms of storytelling i think it's too samey it doesn't work because i can't follow what's going on around the table and really it just lends itself to one-liners which get a bit old in the end is it completely unentertaining no there is some entertainment in it there are some sort of chuckles they mostly come from being nasty to each other so you're going to have to accept that you are going to get stitched up everyone before you can kill a character generally when you set it up everyone else is going to have a go so who knows what your own family is going to look like. Sometimes you can have a character scored, lots of minus points on it, and someone will bring it back from the dead. So all the hard work you've done in trying to use the cards in your hand, it just gets thrown away. You, the cards in your hand sometimes are limited, so they don't really work with what you're trying to do. The chance of matching up symbols, there there are few cards that match to each symbol in the game, so you're either going to get them or you're not. It's, it's all down to luck of the draw. It's brutal, therefore, in that you don't get invested in whether you're going to win or not. In fact, attempting to win can really prolong the game because everyone will start playing cards with each other. Everyone could talk through it. Everyone could count up the scores and go, right, I'm on minus 170. He's on minus 180. You need to stitch him up first. And then it will tell, right, now you're on minus 170. You're in the lead. So now we need to stitch you up. Now you're on 100. And so on and so forth. And the game only ends when someone has all their characters killed. So people deliberately not ending the game in order not to lose. So you need to forget about trying to win. You need to try and enjoy the story aspect of it and try and have fun despite the fact people are going to be punching you in the face with cards all day long. I will say one thing before I completely sum up. There are three expansions to Gloom. Each expansion adds another player. So you can play it with up to seven players. Uh, I'm just going to leave that there. 
It's very short to comment on that thought of playing a seven-player game of Clue. Anyway, I tell you this: it is different. They've at least attempted to do something which is not the same as other things. It has got a, a different theme. They've tried to do something interesting here. From what we've said, I think it's either going to tickle you the way it's tickled Sean, or it's going to put you completely off the way it's done me. Did I hate playing it? No, I didn't hate playing it. Would I play it again if the group wanted to play it again? Sure, I'd play it again. Would I ever seek the game out? No, I wouldn't. But well done for trying to do something different, better components. Maybe we might make it a better game. Sean. Yeah, I think I'm probably going to echo you, and as you said, go in a completely different direction. The mechanics in this in this game are so-so, if they even reach that level. And the gameplay, as Ronan has quite eloquently pointed out, really don't stand up to in-depth scrutiny. But I like the look of the game. I like the, the morbid humour in the artwork. I re- it really lends itself to me. The storytelling in this game is where it finds its wings. It's not for a scientific mind. Artistic flair and imagination are almost a must with this game. It's not for everyone, but for those who enjoy the humour and are willing to dive into the storytelling aspect of this, will find a richly entertaining, different and rewarding experience. And those that are not, simply will not. That is Gloom. So our final game this week is Praetor. It is a game for two to five players. It is listed as taking 75 minutes and it is themed around players helping to build a frontier town along Hadrian's Wall and help with the building of Hadrian's Wall via worker placement. Now the designer is Andre Novach. He has designed Exodus Proxima Centuri, Warriors and Traders and the upcoming Versailles. It is also published by NSKN Games, and basically NSKN Games publish Andre's designs, pretty much. So each player takes the role of a Roman engineer, and you're going to be spending a certain amount of time building up this frontier town, and as I said, contributing to Hadrian's Wall in order to score victory points. You're going to be resource converting, and at the end of the game, whoever has the most victory points is going to be the winner. In this game, you start with a set of workers now your workers in this game are dice now the reason they're dice is because whichever face is facing up shows you the experience level of your workers and the more experience they get the more effective they get but only to a point and we'll discuss that later you're going to be using your dice each round to build new tiles to add to the city which is in the center of the board which begins with a certain number of tiles also to activate the tiles which are within the city and then by activating those tiles, you're generally going to be attempting to gather resources, use those resources to build the new tiles, improve certain aspects of what you've done in the game, and then score victory points by activating tiles. The setup of the town, it, depending upon the number of players, each character has one 
gold mine which belongs to them which you can be able to use for income now the interesting thing is it doesn't matter who owns which tile in the game you can always go to each other's tiles but if you go to someone else's tile you have to pay them something to do so there's also a market which is going to allow you to convert resources the resources in the game are gold obviously which you're going to use to spend and you're also going to need to pay your workers with there are wood stone marble and weapons and by going to the market you'll be able to buy and sell each of these resources to balance up what you've done so far possibly score points with them or in order to build whatever it is you may want to build there is also a tile you can go to with one of your dice which allows you to add to hadrian's wall each round there's going to be one tile available to add to hadrian's wall it's going to require a certain amount of resources and it's going to score you a certain amount of points the interesting thing with hadrian's wall is every time you build a tile you score the points on it and you flip it over and for every tile you have built previously, you get three extra points whenever you build another Hadrian's Wall tile. So if I've built three previously and I built another Hadrian's Wall tile, I will get nine extra points as well as the points on that tile. So if you're going after it, it's a good thing to build up and chase. And the last tile in the town that's set up is a training camp because you start with three workers, but those three workers may not stick with you for the whole game. And you have five workers who are currently peasants, which you can't activate. But you can go to the training camp and then start bringing those peasants through training. And eventually, after a couple of rounds, they will become workers at level one available for you to use. What can you do on your turn? Exactly what I said. You're going to take mostly one of your dice and you're going to either activate a building or build a new one if you want to build a new building it will show you what resources you require to build it you pay them into the bank you place one of your dice onto the tile you score the points in the top left hand corner because each time you build a building it scores you a certain number of points and then you place it within the city now there's a certain placement mechanism in the game in that each building has got four different colors of mosaics in the corner when you place it so that those corners of mosaics match corners already in place then you can score some extra points so there's just a little bit of judging where to place it will score you some extra points between like could be none it could be as many as eight or nine so it can it can score you some points it can be important the next thing you can do is that you can activate buildings which are already in the city now, as I said, it doesn't matter who owns the building. If someone else owns it, you just have to pay them whatever fee is on the board. It might be gold, it may be a certain resource or what have you. And then you place your worker on there and you do whatever the building does. Now, there are a ton of buildings in the game. We'll talk about some of the things which they do. But the important thing is the ones you activate with your dice are either green or red. And we'll come back to green and red in a minute as to why those are important. So the sort of actions you can do are collect resources. Now, Generally, if you go to collect resources, say you went to one of your, your own gold mine, you place a dice there. The number of pips which are face up on your dice, so the experience level of the worker, tells you how much of that resource you're going to get. So if you send a, a five dice into a gold mine, it's going to get you five gold. If you send a one dice in there, it's going to get you one gold. And the same for all the other tiles which you can build. You can build wood camps, slumber camps, rather, that are going to get you you can build marble quarry stone quarries exactly the same mechanism if i send a level four dice into a marble quarry i'm going to get four bits of marble the only resource which is slightly different is weapons in that it's a two-stage thing to go you have to get some wood and then you have to go to a blacksmith and turn that wood into weapons and that's the only slightly complicated resource within the game there are things you can do there's a morale track on the top of the board and your morale is going to score your points at the end of the game so you can go to like the coliseum for example and improve your morale you can score points which is very important there are several different ways in which you can score points during the game according to which tiles come out there are tiles which will score you 
points for the, your current morale, for example. There are tiles which score you points according to how many active workers you have. We'll get on to the difference between active workers and other workers in a second. There are tiles which will score you points for certain resources for the total amount of wood and stone you've got or the total amount of marble and weapons you have and so there are ways of scoring points throughout the game and then there are going to be more ways in which to train your workers so you can constantly get your peasants train them up and get them out and keep your flow of workers going now there is a third type of building now this is the only action which does not require a dice in the game and these are the grey buildings now you don't put dice on there you put one of your markers on there and then you pay to the owner whatever the cost is and then you do whatever it is so generally the most important ones are they allow you to activate a retired worker. So the first time i mentioned retired workers and i'll come back to it and then i'll also go over what this tile does but the important thing is there are gray tiles now every other tile in the game once a dice has gone there it's used it's typical worker placement no one else can go there and activate that tile again however with the gray buildings everyone can use them every turn but you can only use it once a turn so i can go to a great tile once sean can go to a great tile once puria can go to a great tile once steve can go to a great tile once and, and in that way and you just put a marker on there until everyone has used it once if they choose to once everyone has used all their dice and all their workers for the round everyone takes back their workers now if you're taking back a worker who has used a green building then that worker stays on whatever the pip level is. So if I put a three pip worker into the market, it comes back to me still three pips. If I have used one of my workers, one of my dice to either build a building or on the more numerous red buildings, that worker is going to go up one level. So it's going to turn its face. So if it's a level two, it's going to go to level three when it comes back to me. As I'm doing that, any level 5 worker, which I've used to build a building or on a red building, is going to tick over to level 6, and that worker is then going to retire. It will no longer be available to me for use for the rest of the game. However, it still stays on my board, because once you've brought all your workers back, you're going to have to pay them. When you retire a worker, you score a certain number of points, depending upon whether it's age 1 or age 2 in the game, and that's just dictated by the stack of city tiles which are available, which is varied numbers depending upon the number of players. You build all the age 1 buildings first, then you build the age 2 buildings. If it's age 2, you score slightly less points for retiring a worker. After you've brought them all back, you then must pay all your workers. Now, your active workers, which those that are level 1 to 5, which have been trained, they are going to get paid, and the more you have, you can start having to pay more. Generally, they're one gold each turn per worker. If you have more than five or six, you're going to have to start paying two gold. If you have loads and loads, they cost you three gold a turn, which could be very expensive. You also have to pay your retired workers. All your retired workers are going to cost you one gold every round for the rest of the game. I did say, however, there are those grey buildings which you can go to and pay the cost each turn, and you can use one of your retired workers as a level six. So it can go and collect six resources from one of these areas. It can go to any building you wish. So there is some use for one or two of them, depending upon how many of those buildings are out per game, but they are going to be a drain on your resources. You then restock at the end of the round the city tiles which are available. You then restock a hadrian's wall tile if the tile from the previous round wasn't built you throw it away and then you just have a new one out so there's always just one available per round and you check to see whether the next round is going to be the last round and it will be the last round if either the hadrian's wall tile stack is empty or the city tile stack is empty so everyone can see right this is the last round score all your points now end of the game there's a little bit of scoring for your morale and you convert all your resources into gold and score points but it's not a very efficient way of doing so and that is 
Praetor. Sean, do you want to jump in with your thoughts on Praetor? Well, Ronan, it's quite a daunting game when you first look at it. But I think that's, that's kind of a full stop because everything does make sense. But I'm going to start off with just the looks of the game. It's pretty bog standard Euro art. It's not going to stand out from the crowd, but it's not going, it's not particularly ugly either. It's nicely done. The tiles are nice. Everything's everything's reasonably well done. But the thing that stood out for me really was the the dice aspect where they do age and they get more experienced and obviously they're going to reap you more rewards the more experience they get and they eventually retire as, as Ronan explained. Now this isn't groundbreaking, a fairly new mechanism that's been brought into games at the moment using the dice as workers. So that, that, was, that was the bit that really interested me at first, Ronan. Well, just to, if I may, go back to components because I think there's something to discuss there. I th- actually think the art is quite nice, especially on the building tiles. I think that they've actually done good work there. I think that the tiles are quite good quality and all the cardboard bits are good quality. I think it all makes sense. Your player board makes sense. The iconography in the game is really good. When you look at a tile, you might need explaining once, but once it's been explained, you go, oh yeah, that makes sense. I know what that does. Everything has its own separate sort of way of working and you look at it and go, okay, that all makes sense. I think the dice are okay. They're, they're nice. They're not tiny or anything like that. And they certainly do the job as a component. But just to... Quickly, just stick on components, Sean. Three issues. Firstly, silver coins are worth five. Gold coins are worth one, which is kind of counterintuitive and not the way most games work. Those mosaic colours are all way too similar to each other. It's incredibly difficult to tell blue from white and blue from green in certain lights. And for the fact that you're placing according to colour, that's been made unnecessarily difficult. And mostly, and kind of unforgivably, there's not enough resources with the game when you're playing with players you just run out every game there's not enough wooden cubes there's not enough lots of different things and you end up having to sort of we were putting cubes on 20 pence pieces to mark that i had 20 of these because you can get tons and tons of resources there's some frustrations there's good and bad with the components sean yeah, yeah, oh, absolutely, yeah, I was going to get on to the components. There's really not a lot there, and for five players, you're really going to be struggling with those components, those resource components. The mosaic things, yeah, you're absolutely spot on. It's really hard to differentiate between the different designs. And to be honest, I didn't like that aspect of the game at all, the the title lane. Although it is quite important because you're scoring points, it just didn't add to the game. It kind of felt like a another game that they started building and just threw in at the last minute. It felt unfinished, that part of the game. It just felt pointless. But, yeah, you're, you're right about it. And also, wasn't there a problem with the massive rules explanations, the player aids? And there wasn't enough for every player as well. Yeah, it's the... F- <laughs> this is a five-player game, and you get four player aids. And Five Tribes is a four-player game, and you get five player aids. I don't know whether someone got confused somewhere. I don't, Five Tribes has nothing to do with this game. It's just a weird thing that they are. We've been playing them around the same time. But yeah, the player aids are humongous. Now, the game's got a big footprint anyway. And if you try and give everyone one of those player aids, then it's just not going to happen. The other problem is, one side of the player aids shows you all the buildings, which is great, because it's definitely something you need to know. But the iconography is so good, you don't need that player aid for most of the time. The other side tells you how a turn goes, but it's left things out. So if you follow the player turn order on the player aid, you miss out certain bits within the round and you don't do them. So uh, 
it's it's a good try. It's it's nice that they've got a summary of all the buildings, which is something we moan about in other games, whereby you know you don't get a tile summary enough of them in Kemet, for example. But in this, I I don't need it because because you, your iconography is so good. I don't need that. Make it smaller and give me the turn order with everything on it. It's a weird oversight. It's one of the small weird oversights in this game. Like the resources other games show you how you can do you don't have to have 800 cubes in there you can just have times five or times ten little tiles like in agricola for example that you just put one wooden cube on a times ten and now that's ten wooden cubes and, and people you know gamers follow what that means so they're kind of easy ways to overcome that because the two sort of gameplay aspects we've touched on there 100 percent agree with you on the mosaic issue i just don't understand it i don't get it it makes no difference where a tile is in the city so the placement is not important in any way. There's no sort of adjacency rules or moving workers around or anything like that. So it's just a pain and no one likes it. And I wish they just made the buildings more valuable. Just everything scores four more points is a lot easier than having to mess around with this mosaic thing. We've got one guy, a friend of ours, full on, who is brilliant at it. So when we play it with him, we just give him our tile and say, find me the best place for that. And he finds it within five seconds. Much better than everyone sitting there for two minutes trying to work out with the colours. Is that white? Is that blue? It doesn't make sense. To come back to your point you made a while ago, the dice thing, you're right. It, it really does work. The dice are workers for a reason. And it, it makes sense. It's so, again, another thing they've done well in that I can see exactly what everyone, level everyone's worker is what they've got left where they can go and what's effective and what is most effective for me to use yeah yeah absolutely that's that's what the balance in the game that i find really interesting is that you've got you've got all these tiles out there and you've got to work out where to place your workers uh what ones to place because they're not all going to be the same because usually in worker worker placement games every worker is going to reap the same rewards these aren't they're going to reap different rewards and you've got to be really wary about retiring these guys because yes you might be getting points but you're losing a five or a four eventually a worker that's going to reap five and four of whatever you put them on and all of a sudden you've got basically just somebody who's going to be sitting at home doing nothing for you there are there are tiles that can bring these retired workers back into play and they're quite interesting and i'm glad for those because just having them sitting there taking your resources away doing nothing that would feel a little bit irksome really but yeah, it's a really interesting juggling act. Interesting that you should talk about the tiles that bring the uh, workers back into play because they are hugely controversial, I will say, amongst the community that's been playing this game. They are the grey tiles. Now, as I said, it doesn't matter who owns a tile in the city. Anyone can go and use it. You have to pay the owner to use it, though, whatever the cost may be. In the game, as published, the grey tile that allows everyone to use a retired worker can be built by someone and they own it. Now, every time a player goes and uses that tile, they must pay the owner three gold. That's quite a lot of gold. Especially in a higher player number, it is, no matter the player number, it's always worth going there to you individually. Because paying three gold, you will then use your six worker to get you some resources. Now, the, the worst you can do is get six gold from your gold mine. You can get six wood, which is worth 12. You can get six marble, which is worth 24 gold. So I'm paying three gold to make a potential 24 gold, albeit that I must use another action to do that. However, 
each player is going to do it. That you are going to do it. it. It makes no sense to yourself. So the person who has got lucky or planned, if you want to say that, and built that tile is now going to get an income of 12 in a five-player game every round. Plus, they don't have to play the three themselves. So it's, almost, it's an income of 15, really, in a five-player game every single round. And that is a huge difference. It's wildly unbalanced. There's another one in higher player counts in which each player must pay one weapon in order to use that and use their six worker. Now, the weapons are the only two-stage resources, which is why I mentioned it in the rules thing. And they are worth loads of money in the market as well. And that person who builds that is getting an income of a weapon from every other player every turn. And they don't have to pay it. And then those weapons are what goes towards the most valuable buildings. And they're often used in the Hadrian's Wall tiles as well. And suddenly it just is something that does not work. Sean, do you want to comment on that before I, I then talk about what's happened and what the evolution of the game has been? Well, no, I was just going to say, Ronan, basically, that you've kind of already touched on some of the things that you felt were broken about the game. And then we've kind of shuffled down that path a little bit further. So... Yeah, I think we're getting to the point where it's time to sort of talk about sort of the things that aren't quite right with this game, Ronan. So, in August, Andre Novak himself out an official errata because the game, as published in May, had certain issues with it, which meant that it didn't quite work. This next section is going to sound like we're giving the game a little bit of a kick in. Let me preface it. The reason why I'm bothering to go over this is because there is so much good in this game. It's a game that I've enjoyed playing. I'm not sure exactly what Sean's going to say, but other people who have played it with me have enjoyed it. And the majority of what they've done with the game is very clever, works very well. As with the components, as with the gameplay, they appear to have got the big things right and some of the smaller things wrong. So, the errata that Andre has brought out, well, let me go through them, okay? So, it will show you some of the issues with the game as published. The first one was some of the temples that scored you points for having resources just didn't work. There's a temple that allows you to score one point for every wood and one point for every stone which you have. You could play the game by just hoarding wood and stone for the whole game, waiting for that temple to come out, build it, and there are stories on BoardGameGeek of people scoring 60, 70 points every turn just by using one building. Now, this is a game in which the winning score, it does depend upon player count, but high with five players, maybe 150, with fewer players, possibly as, as high as 200. If I can score 60 or 70 points from one building every turn, I will win the game. I've also played the whole game just by hoarding resources, not by contributing to the city, not by contributing to the wall. It in no way feels thematic. I'm not using these resources to spend them to score the points. I have to spend resources to score points to build buildings and Hadrian's Wall. I don't have to do it here. It didn't work. So what Andre did was he limited it, and you cannot score more than 22 points for using either of the two temples which score you for resources. So clearly there was an issue there. There was an unthematic issue in that when you go and collect resources or use buildings for conversion, it was limited by the pips on the dice that were face up to so the level of your worker. At the market, it wasn't. When you went to the market, even with a level one worker, you could do as many trades as you wish to do. Again, that led to imbalance because people were swapping resources backwards and forwards, huge numbers of them. I could sell those 60 wood and stone I, I'd collected 
and, and suddenly I've got 200 gold, which is just an incredible amount. And it lets me buy whatever I want to buy. And, and it didn't work. So he's limited that as well. When you send a worker to the market, it can only do as many transactions of each type as the number of pips on it. The grey building we talked about, which lets you use the retired worker, they have to be unassigned. Okay, they do not work if one player is allowed to build it. If you build it, it is a massive advantage to you. You're going to get that income we talked about. So now, those builders come out, they go straight into the city, and they are unassigned to any player. So if you wish to use it, you must pay either the three gold or the weapons to the bank, rather than to another player and give them a huge advantage. So something else where they were one of the tiles did not quite work. And the last thing was... You can get into a certain strategy here in how you're going to score points each turn. So perhaps I might bump my morale up massively and then use the temple to score points on my morale. Or I might try and build lots of buildings and then score points every turn on the building that lets me score as per the buildings I have in the game. Sometimes players don't want to build all the buildings in the game and the game really becomes more abundant. Sometimes, especially with, with smaller player counts. So... Rather than having all the Hadrian's Wall tiles in the game, he's limited now that you just have 10, and then that means there's only going to be 10 or 11 rounds in the game, and that's it. The game finishes after that. So you know there's a timer on it. So you're not playing what was designed to be a 75-minute game for three or four hours. Those changes, I am saying right now, you have to include them to fix the game. Whether you think, you know, sometimes when you hear about all these different things that are super-powered within the game, you think, well, they must balance each other out. It made the game feel unthematic. It made the game feel just completely wild and completely out of control and was not in keeping with the tight resource collection, resource conversion game, which this, this game felt like uh, until the kind of the broken issues came back. Before I go on, Sean, I've talked for quite a long time. What are your thoughts on how they have fixed the game post the initial printing? Everything you said is true. You do need to have these fixes. So... While I completely applaud the fact that Andre has listened to his public and listened to, to the fans of the game and he's come back with this errata, you just have to wonder what the process was before this game came out. How how much was it play-tested? Uh, why didn't these, these fairly simple things, like you said before with the resource cubes, why did that not get picked up? So, you know, on one hand, I'm, I'm really happy that they've listened to everybody and they have they are coming out with these fixes. On the other hand, I'm slightly worried about why this didn't get picked up before. Yeah, it's a strange one. And this isn't NSKN's first game either. And the bad news is that there was the same or similar issues with Exodus, Proxima Centuri, kind of the biggest hits before that. They had to do a second edition, which fixed rules, fixed components, made things clearer... I've only actually played with the second edition of Exodus. I haven't played with the first edition, but a lot of things, while well, kind of was discussed, were made clear as to what they had to change in order to make the game more playable and to really make it work. And again, it seems like they had the, the core, the 90% of a really good game there, and then they've just... The periphery is wrong. And with this, they have got the core of a really good, interesting game, and they've just got some of the periphery wrong. And... It seems like, are they focusing on the player's experience? It seems strange that as soon as it gets released, quickly, players are, within one or two plays of the game, copping onto issues with it and saying, this is not working, this is not right, this needs sorting out. When it's obvious after one or two plays, hold on, that doesn't work, that doesn't seem to be right, then, you know, is the playtesting process working with doing it at the moment? 
Yeah, I think we've covered everything, Ronan. And obviously, this game has its problems and it has its little issues that need to be fixed. As you said, Ronan, there's a lot to like about this game. The game innovates, but it doesn't overreach with that innovation. It introduces a couple of small little mechanisms that really do make me want to play the game. As I said before, I really love the dice element to it. I think it scales well. We've had a two-player game that I thought was fantastic, but also the upper the upper echelons of the numbers, the fives and the fours, I think it plays really well. And they're almost completely different games, but in my opinion, equally as good as each other. It's a very tense, thinky game as you get towards the end. The, a little bit of AP can come in those last couple of moves, but to be honest, you're almost glad of that AP because you're so concentrating on how you're going to eke that last big score out. I like the game. I will play at any time. I've got a lot of time for NSK, and I think they make good games, but I do have it at the back of my head, I just do have this worry that maybe the games aren't being as playtested as much as they could do. But for, for Praetor, with the Arata included, I think it's a very, very good game. Well worth checking out. I think I'm going to agree with you again, Sean. It's been a very harmonious episode. I really enjoy Praetor. The reason I bother to bring up the issues with the components and the Arata and what have you, and still kind of review it and put it out there, is because it is a really good game. And something that's just rubbish, I can ignore. I can just throw it away and go, do you know what? It's no good. I'm not interested. I think that it is a really good, tense work placement game. Unusually, I find that I prefer the two or three player game because it is more tense. There are not second copies of certain buildings. So if someone blocks you going somewhere, that that's it. You're screwed for that round. You're not going to get what you need. If, if the market gets covered over, that can really screw you over because you're not going to get and, and you're going to be delayed in what you're attempting to achieve. With more players, there are more tiles and people can tend to go to their own separate strategies and the gameplay becomes slightly less tense because you know what everyone's going after. It's more important for them to get to certain places first. You need to get at your place first so you're kind of playing your own individual little strategies perhaps slightly more than with fewer players. But, as you said, still works with that number. I hope that the mistakes they've made in launching it don't sort of stimmy it. I know that Exodus has almost kind of got over those issues from the first edition and is still finding its legs and the second edition is much more successful. Perhaps there'll be a second edition of Praetor and it will have these fixes and it will go on and NSK Games will continue to produce interesting games for us because there is definitely a ton of potential here. They just need to spend that extra time in see Praetor, get it, download the very small three or four little bits of errata and enjoy it. A fine, fine game. following is an unpaid for preview. So I've had the opportunity to play test and preview a game called King Down. Now this is designed by Sarshai and is currently on Kickstarter having already met its funding goal. So this game is going to come into production. It is a re-implementation of chess. So you're playing on a chessboard or I think the game is going to come with its own design but it's basically a chessboard. On each side of the board depending on the amount of players is going to be your front line and this is your safe area to bring your pieces into play and nobody can touch you in the safe area. Now to bring your pieces into play 
you can either spend some of your four action points or you can play what's called a calling card but we'll come back to the cards later the action points are going to be spent to do the following four points so that's all of your your allocation for each turn is going to be used to bring a new piece into play now the pieces aren't called your pawns your kings your queens your knights whatever you they're called different names for instance the pawns are called the pikes the knights are called the steeds and the queen is called the thorn and each of the kings has their own different name depending on what faction you're playing for and so to bring them into play without using a card is going to cost you four points to move and take another person's playing piece is going to have three points to just move is two points and to swap out one of your cards for another one is going to cost you one point so as i said this game comes with cards there are calling cards which have two functions really the main thing for them really is they are going to be used to bring your characters or your playing pieces into play so you obviously play your steed card to bring your steed into play it also doubles up as a bonus action so when once these things are already in play you can play this card and it's going to give you nice little bonuses it's going to give you an extra move an extra attack that kind of thing now on top of that we have what's called spell cards now the spell cards are nice bonuses that you can play onto characters or the playing piece cards themselves and they're going to give you a nice extra bonus and they're going to be a little bit more powerful than the bonuses that come with the calling cards and that's really the gist of the game it's, it's still a tactical game you're still playing roughly the the same way as chess plays they still move in the same way but what i haven't described is in the center of the board is four spaces and that's called the capital the scoring on the game basically goes every time you take a piece it's a point if you take the opposition's king it's two points and for every playing piece at the end of your turn in the capital that's going to give you a point as well once a player reaches eight points they are the victor that's that's basically how that's basically how this game works so what are my thoughts having played the prototype of when i hear but somebody is reimagining chess. I, and Ronan is a strong advocate of this as well, we will emit an audible groan because it's chess. Are you really going to make it any better? What can you really do to chess? And to be honest, when we first received King Down and, and heard about it, there were those alarm signals. We're quite interested because... We did we did enjoy the agents, which was Sarshai's last release. We thought that was an interesting game, but for myself, the fantasy makeover and the fact that it was being driven a lot by cards did go some way to sort of easing my fears on the game. Having played it, I think the game does feel quite fresh, while at the same time being familiar, because you've still got the same movements of the chess pieces, but the cards do change it up, and the, the point scoring do change it up a little bit now. I am now interested to see how the final product plays out. I've only played two players, but I think this game is going to hit its sweet spot with three and four players, because the two-player game, as two-player games can be, it's very zero-sum, tit-for-tat, 
And I don't think it's as strategic or tactical as it may be with three or four players coming on from all sides, uh, interacting with each other, maybe forming alliances. I That's where I think this game is going to really hit its stride. I think I'd like to see those familiar movements tampered with slightly of those chess pieces. I think... Having exactly the same movements with no real scope to change that. Yeah, you can extend the movements with some of the spell cards that make you go further or shuffle to the left or shuffle to the right and or move to a, an adjacent spot, what have you. But I think if there were spell cards or calling cards that just completely changed what the the, the bishop or the cross, as he's called in this, does just to keep players on their toes. And it doesn't have to be a lot, because you don't want it to be too random. You don't want someone to play strategically, get themselves into a nice position, and then just be completely scuppered. You need to know that those cards are out there, and it needs to be a case of holding on to them and playing them at the right moment. But I would like to see the movements adjusted or played around with slightly. I've also had a look at the Kickstarter page. And another thing that draws me to this game, really is the fantastic artwork and the really, really impressive miniatures. The artwork is striking, it's colourful, it brings you in. The whole design of the game is very, very well put together. It's very professional looking and those miniatures just round it off nicely. I still have my worries for any game that's going to try and implement chess, but... This game really, really has me interested. I'm definitely going to keep an eye on it. And as I said, the production values are very, very impressive. So if you think that you maybe fancy a go, it's on Kickstarter now. As I said, it's already funded. It's nearly 300% on its funding. So a lot of people are back in this. So that's King Down by Sarshai. Well, there you have it. That's another round of games picked over thoroughly. We hope you enjoyed the episode. And next up for us on the game pit, we are starting to squee over those big Essen releases. It's our Treasure Hunt Essen special. That is going to be exciting times. Thank you very much indeed for listening. We would love to hear your feedback. Please email us at thegamepitpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at gamepitpodcast. We've got a Facebook page. You can find us on there. We have got a board game geek guild which we are happy to hear your conversations in and join in we are members of the dice tower network where you will find the finest audio board gaming content in the entire world head to 2d6.org you will find the best in board gaming goodness video audio and written thank you and we will catch you next time for lots of essen buzz music by e 